Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. What are your thoughts about baptism? In this interview, I ask Ken LaProd, a house church pastor from El Paso, Texas, and Juarez, Mexico, to share his journey with respect to this subject. Coming from a way international background, LaProd learned that spirit baptism had replaced water and was taught that baptisms and acts were incidents of the apostles holding on to an outdated mode without fully realizing that spirit had replaced water. When LaProd went back through the book of Acts, however, he failed to detect any negative remarks about baptism in water. He started to see how baptism in water and spirit actually went together in several conversion narratives in Acts and started on quite a journey to study this subject himself, culminating in his own baptism a couple of years back. Interestingly enough, although he had no anticipation of this, he experienced some miraculous physical healing after he received baptism. Now, I realize for some of Restitutio's listeners, this subject may be controversial, and for others, it might be completely mundane. All I ask is that you consider what Ken LaProd shares here. He has a very level-headed, humble approach to the subject, and even if you disagree with him, I think it's good to at least hear him out and hear his case on why baptism in water is still relevant today. Here now is interview number 14, Ken LaProd, talking about his baptism journey. Welcome to Restitutio. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Sean. Today we're talking about your journey with the doctrine of baptism, which is an important subject, and I thought we could start by looking at first what your understanding of this was growing up. Now, you had you had been an atheist, and had converted to Christianity under the Way International. And so what was your belief about the subject during that time? Interestingly, uh, the same year I became a Christian, I later got involved in uh, in the Way International. Once I took the uh, foundational class of you know basic Bible instruction in March of 1973, I quickly latched on to the idea being promoted that spirit baptism had somehow replaced water baptism and that that was the meaning of, say, Acts 1-5, where uh, Jesus said, uh, you know, for John, surely, certainly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with Holy Spirit. And so there was a whole theology of how, well, a greater baptism had replaced an an inferior baptism associated with John, and I kind of latched onto that idea, and for the most part of 40 years, didn't question it that much. 40 years, huh? Yes, 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) I can't say that about anything. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) That sounds like a very reasonable hypothesis, that Look, baptism was in water during the period that John the Baptist was in ministry, 
Then, of course, when John died, Jesus took over, and then once the Spirit came on Pentecost, that the idea of that the practice of spirit baptism would replace the water. The idea that John's ministry was provisional, so John's baptism was provisional, and then once Jesus came and once the Spirit came, that replaced it. I mean, it sounds very reasonable. It does sound reasonable on the surface. The thing I kept noticing when, oh, say, starting about five years ago, you know, after a conversation with Victor Glucken, I started rereading the New Testament and uh, a lot in the book of Acts and thinking about the, the different places where people were obviously baptizing other people. And uh, it made me question our old norm of spirit baptism having replaced water baptism because, you know, starting on the day of Pentecost, Peter asked that people be baptized, that they repent and be baptized, and then, as an after result, they would receive the Holy Spirit. So it it began to dawn on me more and more that the continued practice of water baptism in the book of Acts was not in contradiction to what Jesus had said about the Holy Spirit being poured out and calling it baptism in, in Acts 1-5. Right. So with observing people baptizing other people, why did that in any way challenge your your old view? I mean, couldn't that have been in spirit? One of the things I noticed that the way Holy Spirit baptism is used, or, you know, being baptized in Holy Spirit, it's, it's actually never used as a noun, but it's only used in six verses, but it never refers to anyone other than the ascended Messiah being a baptizer with Holy Spirit. Right. It never fit the, the pattern of people baptizing other people. So, you know, when you, when you see that early in Acts, of course, I, you know, one of the ways I think we explain that away was to say, well, these people were still used to uh, doing things that were still under the law. We considered the Gospels as uh, in distinct administration where the law had not been completed yet. Even though there's some truth to that, uh, the uh, you know it, it struck me more and more that our dispensational way of explaining away things and saying that, well, these people were mostly mistaken in the book of Acts to be practicing uh, baptism with water. It dawned on me more and more that if they were truly mistaken, that would have been reproved. Just like, for example, the mistakes of actually practicing works of the law, uh, old covenant works like circumcision as a requirement, uh, like um, the food laws, you know, Sabbath observances and other calendar observances. These type of things were, as practiced incorrectly, are very, very sharply reproved in Galatians, in Colossians, in Acts 15, Hebrews, other places. And I noticed that the practice of baptizing people, people literally baptizing other people by dunking them in water, was never reprimanded as if it were an outdated 
quote, work of the law, end of quote. So what I hear you saying is that you perceived almost like a dispensational approach on this one subject, even though you were no longer a dispensationalist. Exactly. I, I realized that in a subtle way, I had, by not really challenging my, my own thinking on this subject, um, I had continued to, to retain an aspect of dispensationalism that, without really realizing that it was still you know, part of my psyche, part of my system. <laughs> okay, so, so then what happened next? One of the things that happened when uh, we met at one of the conferences in November, this was the one in 2014, so just a little over two years ago, we talked a lot about Jesus' command in Matthew 28, what's called the Great Commission, oftentimes. We talked about it in terms of a mission statement, and Jesus' command there, you know, basically has three parts, you know, discipling people from all nations, uh, also um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe that which he had commanded. It struck me upon studying that that, that part about baptizing, I was just assuming that it was somehow metaphorical, that it was just a maybe a redundant way of saying the same thing as, you know, discipling all nations or making all nations into disciples, instead of realizing that there's no reason not to take baptism literally there. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I, I did start looking at this thing of, well, what does baptism mean literally as contrasted with metaphorical uses? I, I know that as a metaphor, you could use it to say, well, it means to immerse into anything. But to assume that that's the primary way the word is used, when the, the vocabulary in, in Greek is rooted in literal terms for washing, for dunking or dipping in water, uh -huh. I, I realized that, you know, I was getting things backwards. I was getting things con confused and interpreting the word baptism to me immerse into whatever, whenever it suited my theology. I, I, I kind of realized that, oh, that's what I've been doing all these years. I just assume that baptism means what it's convenient for me to make it mean, to fit with my theology. And a lot of this was subconscious. A lot of this was was not deliberate, although I had bought into a, an agenda 40-some-odd years ago of really kind of deliberately dismissing water baptism as outdated because it suited somebody's theology of replacing it with Holy Spirit for whatever reason. Right, yep. So the text then, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen said, Make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them. Some people would say, well, this is some sort of figure of speech where all three are really the same thing. And what you're saying is that, no, these are not three ways of saying the same thing. Making disciples is one thing, baptizing them is another, and teaching them to observe what Jesus has commanded is a third. How, how would you establish that? One of the ways I established it in, in my studies was to 
put myself in the shoes of those present. I knew, for example, that Peter was uh, one of the guys present at that time when he heard the Lord teach that. And then, you know, it's not that many days after that, you know, this, Jesus, this was Jesus speaking in his resurrected body. But in the book of Acts, you know, right after that, on the day of Pentecost itself, Peter, who had been given metaphorically the uh, the keys of the kingdom, so to speak, you know, before preaching the open doors about requirements to enter the kingdom to Judeans, Jews in, uh, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and then later on, the first one to open doors to the Gentiles, in both cases, with the Jews on the day of Pentecost, and then later with the um, the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, the use of, of water to baptize people was totally seen as congruent with them having received Holy Spirit. There wasn't uh, any such of a theology in, in his thinking, or in the thinking of anyone in the book of Acts, that, oh, some new mode of baptism has replaced an old, outdated mode of baptism. And this thing, you know, as I read and reread these things, these things became clearer. If Peter had been wrong to assume that, then I, I don't understand why uh, these things would be accompanied by miraculous power on the day of Pentecost, miraculous power in the, in the house of Cornelius, uh, miraculous power when Philip went to Samaria, you know, all of these things kind of corroborated that uh, these guys were on track. They yeah. they weren't perfect people. They didn't know anything. But once again, anything that was doctrinally wrong or misleading in the book of Acts was eventually reproved and reproved quite strongly. Anything that was outdated as an obsolete requirement, a work of the law, is reproved and defined as such very clearly in the scriptures. But baptism is never in the category of a, quote, work of the law that should have been reproved. And then later on, the Apostle Paul, very obviously, you know, in Acts 16, uh, with Lydia, then with the jailer and his family. I know, you know, some people quote this thing in Acts 16 somewhat out of context. They say, well, look, uh, the only requirement of the jailer was to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what Paul told him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, you and your household. But that belief was accompanied by action, and the action was they got baptized, right. you know, by the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, this is years after, many years uh, after the day of Pentecost, and the fact that these things were still going on and that baptism is mentioned, at least briefly, in Galatians, you know, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Corinthians, it, it, it just shows me that there was a pattern of seeing that practice as totally congruent with the revelation of the new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ, yeah. Messiah's baptism. You know, just like John's baptism was a baptism in water for repentance, the difference being that John baptized in light of, hey, there's somebody coming later who's greater than I. Jesus Christ's 
baptism, but in light of, well, here's the Messiah. You know, that there's still that congruent message of baptism and a symbol, a physical symbol done with people's bodies to represent the redemption that the Lord Jesus Christ has, has brought about. Let me pause you there because I feel like I'm drinking from a, a fire hydrant here. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Um, what I hear you saying on Matthew 28:19 is that if you put yourself in the shoes of Peter, for example, who was one of the people there that heard this commissioning, Peter himself had been baptized in water under John's baptism. So if you just say baptism, he's going to have that experience in his head of what that means. And then you combine that with the actual going forward in the book of Acts, his behavior there, and you see that he did, in fact, continue doing that. You you have it on the day of Pentecost, you have it in chapter 10, and then also the other example is Paul, who has more theological maturity, especially by the time of Acts chapter 16. He's continuing in this seemingly misguided practice as well. So in other words, you're you're arguing that the, the practice is not really misguided at all. It's it's obedient to what Jesus had commissioned the church to say. To that, I just want to add one little thing here, and that is that in a later Christian document outside of the Bible, the document known as the Didache, this text they they quote, which is basically a handbook for how to do church. They quote this verse, and they they, they talk about what the practice of baptism was like in the early church. Now, this document obviously it's not inspired, it's not authoritative for us, but it does give us a window into how early Christians thought about this subject in even a later time, but way before the Catholic Church got started. And in this document, what they say is, look, baptize people in cold running water. If you don't have that, then baptize them in basically a tub, in, in lukewarm water. And if you, if you don't have enough water to do that, then pour it over their head. <laughs> and so you get this idea that the, the debate is not over the water part of it. It's just like, well, how can we do it based on if we live in a desert or if we live in a place next to a stream or um, what sort of situation we're in? And so you have a real coherence from the practice of John, the practice of Jesus, the practice of the apostles, the practice of the early church, right up through to really today, if you look at it from a historical perspective. And that, for me, I know that might not be part of your journey, but for me, that was a significant part of my journey looking into this, because I wanted to see when this doctrine got corrupted, and I and I kept pushing that date back and back and back and back, and I ended up in the 20th century when I found the first people who were going against baptism. Right. So that was that was really shocking for me to discover, but I, I'm sorry, I cut you off. What was it for you next after that? That experience of... Uh... Uh, of reading and rethinking just basic definitions that, for example, uh, you know, I got into the study of, well, what does literal usage mean in comparison with metaphorical usage? You know, just about any term that can be used literally can be used metaphorically. But that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, even human authors basically give you clues as to when a certain word is being used in a metaphorical way. For example, when uh, the Apostle Paul talks about running the race and stuff like that, well, we, we know that he wasn't, you know, stretching out there with his, with his uh, knights and, 
you know, running down a racetrack. He's talking about metaphorically about practicing, working, making an effort to be obedient to the scriptures, to the word of God, to what he's called to do in, in Christ Jesus. Right. And, you know, one of the things I studied was, well, it's the metaphorical uses of baptism are really just a few. They're quite limited. One has to do with Jesus being the one who would baptize with Holy Spirit and with fire, you know, which is a metaphorical reference to uh, future judgment. You know, and that's clear in all four Gospels and in Acts 1-5. Well, in Acts 1-5, it doesn't mention fire, but in the Gospels, it mentions Holy Spirit and fire. Then I noticed that, you know, when Jesus talked about his upcoming suffering, that, well, can you guys be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? And there he's referring to the, his upcoming suffering. And, the, and they answer, well, yes, we can. He says, well, that's, that will happen someday. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, I noticed that, you know, probably, I, I didn't calculate percentage or anything, but I would say 90% or at least 85% of the scriptures use baptism in a literal sense. And so that, that got my attention. If it's not literal, there must be something in the context to, to trigger a, a metaphorical interpretation. Yeah, this seems to be something that is really the crux of the debate over this subject, is do we take references to baptism, like say for example... Let me just throw out a concrete example to work with. Acts 8.12, it says, But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. On a metaphorical reading of that, what it means is that they were immersed, or in other words, they were, what, converted? That they experienced Christ in a spiritual way? And, And then the other option is that they believed Philip as he preached the gospel, and then they were dunked in water. So those are the two possible readings here. If you're going with a metaphorical reading, then you have one, you have a dry (laughs) convert, and then if you uh, go with the literal reading, you have a wet convert. And what I hear you saying here is that unless there's something in the text to trigger a metaphorical interpretation, we should default to the literal. Is that pretty much what you're saying? Uh, I think that's just the basic understanding of, of language that, uh, you know, even a human author, if they're using something in uh, a metaphorical or a symbolic way, uh, then it'll be obvious. Of course, that literal baptism itself is symbolic in the fact that it's a, it's a representation. And one of the things I, I, I think has to do with our, our old dispensational thinking was somewhat Gnostic. We saw physical things as somewhat less relevant right. than what we consider to be spiritual things. And, you know, the same God who had uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of metaphorical or symbolic I mean, the activities that were to be carried out literally, you know, building the tabernacle, uh, making the clothes for the priests, dipping things in water, sprinkling things in blood. The God who had perhaps hundreds of such things done 
for a period of, oh, about 1,500 years, was, uh, it's the same God who, you know, reduces symbolic things in the Messiah's accomplishments to not just a couple of things. So, but to dismiss everything that's physical as if, oh, that's anti-spiritual somehow. It's, it's just a misunderstanding of how Yahweh works with people. Yeah, it almost reminds me of a Reformation slash anti-Catholic bias, an iconoclasm, if you will, where, oh, well, the th- this is a ritual, therefore it is one of these religious, anti-spiritual practices that has no meaning in it. But if you look at, like you mentioned there, all of the physical rituals, for lack of a better word, in the worship of God in the tabernacle, in the temple, in all these other uh, Old Testament requirements, we, I don't think we're, we can say, oh, God is against the physical. Exactly, exactly. And the other parallel, too, that we need to mention here is communion. Here is a physical act that conveys this incredibly meaningful spiritual reality, but it is based on this physical act. Or a wedding. A wedding is a physical act with a spiritual reality. I mean, we have a few like this. Sure, sure. You know, even, you know, lifting up holy hands when you pray, you yeah. know, that there are a few things like that that from the heart. Plus, you know, on the a negative sinful side, just to, to talk about how misleading this thinking could be, uh, if somebody sins with actions with their body, they trick themselves into thinking that, well, it's no big deal. My spirit didn't sin. My uh. spirit is some sort of <laughs> eternal life seed within me. You know, old, once saved, always saved, dispensational thinking. So it's no biggie if I sin with my body. And, you know, that's that's one of the, the ways that such thinking is, can be devastatingly misleading, you know. <laughs> so in your own heart, you had come to this understanding I was actually there, but for the listeners, can you describe how you took the step of actually going through with it? That was interesting. I had uh, I had been uh, in Atlanta, you know, end of April, early May in 2014, where no baptisms had uh, taken place. I, w- I had just retired from working at that time. I was I was very sick physically. You know, I had been sick for about a year. I had been diagnosed with kind of a severe situation with diabetes that had affected my eyesight, uh, among other things. But I had been taking uh, medicines, you know, strong medicines to supposedly control blood sugars, but the the medicines were giving me very terrible side effects. You know, I I won't go into graphic details, but it's... uh, you know, my intestinal uh, tract just was constantly in flux between extreme constipation and the extreme opposite uh, of <laughs> constipation. Right, we get the picture. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, even changing, what you know, my eating habits and stuff like that wasn't helping. I eventually, in, in 2014, I stopped taking these medicines and just focused on what I could do with eating habits and exercise. The only exercise I could do was walk. I couldn't do anything more strenuous than that. And anyway, so there had been baptism was mentioned, and 
Atlanta in 2014. I went back in 2015. This time, my you know, in my little suitcase, I packed an extra change of clothes in case I got some wet. I, I just I had this thought that you know what, if baptisms are presented, I've been looking at these things. I think to be honest uh, before Yahweh, I need to uh, go ahead and act on this as an, an act of repentance, even though it should have been done, you know, earlier in my life at the time that I initially committed myself to the Lordship of Jesus on, on some level, according to my previous understanding anyway. I, I brought some extra clothes, and sure enough, when I I got to the airport, uh, late April uh, 2015, uh, I got on a uh, a little tram from the airport, and there was a guy there from Connecticut named Carl, uh, another guy from Houston, Texas named Randy, and I started talking to them, and they had already talked about uh, before. Uh, I got on the little tramway. They had been in contact with each other, but they had already set up something where Carl was going to baptize Randy. So I got involved in uh, their conversation, and I was, you know, I started to look forward with in some excitement that you know this this really looks like an open door from Yahweh to confirm my suspicions that we've really had it wrong all these years. I need to go ahead and take action on it and not get talked out of it. Sure enough, that I think it was that same evening when they mentioned the availability of baptisms, and I went and talked to uh, the Carlos, the uh, Anthony's uh, son-in-law. Yep. I went and talked to. Uh, well, actually, I, I ran into Sarah and uh, mentioned that I would like to sign up for it. And sure enough, I was talking again with Carl and Randy. Uh, the next day, and, uh, you know, Carl was going to go ahead and be baptizing me along with, with Randy. So I was very convinced that, you know, this was an open door from God to get my understanding corrected and then to, uh, you know, be in a, a position to help other people with it. Was it very difficult for you because you had been standing for God for so many years, in fact, decades, and that you are not only someone who is committed to follow Christ, but also a leader of others, was it difficult for you to say, hey, I might have uh, gotten this one wrong, and to, you know, because this is not a private belief that just uh, you need to change in your mind, or a sermon that you need to preach differently. I mean, this is taking, you know, going out into a, a, a body of water and, and doing this publicly. Right. And yeah, I did feel on the spot in a way. I did have some going back and forth in my mind. I did have some, you know, old thinking like, well, this is unnecessary, but I'll go ahead and do it. And what I latched on to for that, I, the idea that, well, Paul went ahead and even though he taught that circumcision wasn't a requirement, he had Timothy circumcised in the book of Acts in order not to give a cause of offense. And I thought, well, if, if I just do it on that level, then it's, it's valid. I'll go ahead and uh, do it with that idea in mind that, you know, it opens the door not to have an obstacle with people who believe in water baptism. So I kind of went to Atlanta almost with that attitude more than any other. 
but I was already suspecting that, you know, some of the ways that we explain scriptures was bogus, was, uh, you know, very uh, theologically motivated. I kind of got this feeling that all of us as young people, some, you know, people in their 20s, some of us, I was a teenager actually when I took the foundational class, I think I was 19 years old, I realized that all of us as a group, we latched on to something that sounded reasonable, but we had never studied this subject on our own, and we didn't really have the the tools to study, although a lot of us were starting to become avid Bible readers. I, I realized that, yeah, we could have easily just gone along with an idea that sounded convincing at the time, but not really having done our homework, not to have studied all you know, 80 scripture references that have words like baptize, baptism, baptist. I I realized that, you know, we we didn't really look at it with our minds and hearts open to another interpretation other than what we heard based on one one verse of scripture in Acts 1-5, 40-some-odd years ago. So all of that was flowing through my mind. But I I did feel on the spot in a way, but... I realized, well, there's something good that's going to come of this. I, I just had that knowingness in me. <laughs> uh-huh. So what was the experience like? Was it different than you expected or about what you thought it would be? What was different about it than I expected, on some level, it was about what I expected. I had I realized one thing. I had never been at a place where I observed baptisms before I got baptized. <laughs> the one person I saw baptized before me was, was Randy uh, from Houston, and uh, so I was the next person to get baptized. But I realized, I've seen it in movies. I saw Robert Duvall uh, get baptized in, uh, in a movie uh, years ago. So I, I've seen the, you know, church version of, you know, baptism by immersion or, or you know, sprinkling of babies, which I, I know to be, unbiblical altogether. I had never really seen anything, but the thing is, I I had been awake just about all night the night before, and I had been rereading these scriptures on a, oh, I had a a nook uh, thing with the New Testament on it, so I was reading and perusing the scriptures uh, through the night and going over all these records. And uh, I, I guess I was surprised that it was very joyful to me. I, I felt like a big breakthrough, like a weight being lifted off of me. And I felt like, you know, Yahweh had illumined my understanding from darkness to light in a way that I hadn't expected, in a way that didn't fit the, the paradigm of my previous thinking. And I felt an extreme amount of joy about that. So it was a good experience. Yes, it was a it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now tell tell a little bit about the aftermath here. One of the things you know, I mentioned previously my health situation. I went back from Atlanta. This no, no, this was May second, two thousand fifteen. So we're yeah, that's twenty months or so uh, ago. I went back from Atlanta, and my intestines were totally healed. I've not had this uh, situation. Since that time, I've continued to to eat healthy, to take certain natural supplements, to, uh, you know, do what I can to watch my blood sugars and things like that. But all of a sudden, there was a dramatic healing in my body. That got my attention because, you know, I've been 
I've been healed before <laughs> uh, from things, uh, knowing that my Heavenly Father was at work uh, through His Son to, to produce healing, to stretch forth His hand, so to speak, and, and heal by the name of His Holy Child, Jesus. And so, in my mind and heart, that became sort of a confirmation that this was very, very much of our Heavenly Father that I come to re-understand this subject. So uh, when I came back, I, I began to study because I wanted to be qualified uh, in, in a certain sense to be able to communicate this to other people in El Paso and Juarez. Now, most of this group of people, you know, say 30 to 35 people, had been indoctrinated mainly by me <laughs> to think of baptism as an outdated, unnecessary ritual. And uh, so I, I began to just calmly explain why I thought that was wrong. And so I uh, did a series of teachings in English in El Paso uh, and Juarez in Spanish and, um, you know, began to uh, – and, and some people had some questions. There were, there were you know, a few people, maybe ten, who had been indoctrinated actually by – the Spanish translation of the foundational class or or the English presentation of the class from that many years ago. but uh, And some people brought up some good questions, but I didn't have anyone take on a negative, defensive attitude. Now, part of it, I, th I think it was God's wisdom at work on how to approach it. I, I just said, look, I, I think I've been wrong about this. I'm teaching why I think it's wrong. I don't think any of you should feel obligated to ditch your previous beliefs because of my experience. So, and I didn't even mention that I had been healed, not until oh, per, maybe about a year later. But uh, I did uh, share it, and I said, look, if you're interested, uh, we're going to do some baptisms here. We, we have a pool uh, in our backyard. So we did do some baptisms in El Paso next summer of uh, 2015, then we did more of uh, this last year, this last summer, both in El Paso and in Juarez. So there have been about 20 adults or, or, you know, teenagers who are committed to the Lordship of Christ who have been baptized so far, and which is, you know, most of the adults, most of the people of the appropriate age at, at this time, although there are, there are a few more, and so we'll make it available this this next summer. But I really do see it as, you know, because there's it involves instruction, teaching, looking at the scriptures, challenging people. Take a look at it yourselves. Uh, you're not obligated to agree with my changed perspective, but if you want to look at it and if you're interested, the only people who kind of uh, had questions as if they were going to wait. They've already been baptized. They already in the you know I, I saw quite a, a few joyful breakthroughs in their lives. Because there was a guy who doesn't talk much about spiritual things out loud, and uh, I had never I'd known him for maybe twenty years. I'd never heard him pray out loud. After he got baptized, he started praying out loud. Just about every meeting we're we're in, he prays out loud. He you know, it's proactive about asking questions. Huh. So it sounds like that was a breakthrough for him. It uh, was a, a big breakthrough for this gentleman. So, you know, I, I've seen things like that that are 
no evidence that making a decided commitment and symbolizing it biblically by baptism is very, not only valid, but important, uh, important that people have a chance to do that. Wow. I mean, it's so rare to talk to anyone who changes their mind about anything, what they were taught, yeah. Right. And uh, so you were able to, to see this in Scripture and had the braveness to, to step through with it, and you had no concept of being healed. Th- that just sort of happened on its own. Exactly, yeah, yeah, it did. It happened on its own. I had I had been, you know, praying daily and, and trying to do with um, healthy eating what I needed to do, but... I was kind of at a standstill for, you know, a whole year since I had stopped using the medicines. And then all of a sudden, uh, there, there was definitely a miraculous breakthrough that weekend I got baptized. So that got my attention big time. Yeah, it sounds like it. That would get my attention. <laughs> so so things are going on well then down in uh, the El Paso Juarez area and... What would you say to someone who is listening to this and maybe they're thinking to themselves, well, you know, Ken, he's he's a nice guy. Baptism, maybe it's is good for him, but I don't need to worry about this because I've already believed or I've already experienced God's Spirit in some other way in my life. And so it's just, it's just irrelevant or unnecessary for me. What would you say to that sort of angle of uh, thinking about it? I, you know, I would simply reiterate that Why would Jesus have commanded it in Matthew 28? Why would it have been such a big part of the early practice of the church if it were uh, irrelevant, if it were not a matter of obedience? The more uh, I read the scriptures, it's just as much an aspect of obedience meant to accompany, you know, initial repentance, but it's just as much an aspect of obedience as, say, forgiving others from the heart, of which, I mean, the Scriptures make it very clear that to take that as something optional, to say, well, you know, I don't, I'll put up so-and-so, I don't really have to forgive them, is to really uh, spit in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ's command that, uh, hey, look, if you don't, forgive your brother truly all the way from the heart, this is how my Heavenly Father is going to judge you. Like that king who had canceled the debts of a guy and then reinstated it when the guy refused to forgive a brother. And, uh, you know, it's anything that's commanded by God, it's to be approached with a God-fearing attitude. It was commonplace for me to think of scriptures in terms of biblical principles that I might or might not apply, you know, for, for decades. I thought that way, and by the grace of God, I did some good things. But by being deceived into having a cocky, arrogant attitude, I dismissed things that are truly biblical as if, as if they were optional. You know, there's nothing in the Scriptures to indicate that this action of baptism is just icing on the cake without any significance. It's And it's so simple to do. You know, why not do something that's that simple? You know, if my heart is to really declare that Jesus is my Lord, I, I, I really don't have to get all defensive about the fact that, 
with faulty information in the past. I, I did on some level declare him as Lord. I did obey on, in certain things, but I had an incomplete picture. Why not get baptized to, you know, show a change of heart uh, as regarding the the rejection of, of past sins that are errors from from false teaching of Christianity. Why not do that? That's that's kind of what I would say. Yeah, I see. Why not do it? What would you say to somebody who said, well, what if I don't do it? Is it a salvation issue? Because that's often something that somebody will bring up right away almost to shut it down and say, well, you're just so out there, man. Um, what would you—how would you reply to that? Yeah. See, that's the thing. Um, all obedience— at some level, is a salvation issue. I don't think that, from from my experience and from, uh, you know, what I see in the Scriptures, I don't think Yahweh is unloving and unforgiving toward people who misunderstand. I would try to clarify the understanding with people instead of, you know, hammering on them on the head or accusing them of being deliberately disobedient or telling them that they're not going to enter the kingdom. Yahweh is the one who who judges how people misunderstand parts of the commandments in the scriptures and you know, but understand other parts and, and try to, to obey from the heart. Nevertheless, it's you know, having said that, it once again, why not do something that that's easy that is that easy to do? You know, it's not something difficult. I think of when, uh, oh, it's almost a baptism record, when uh, Naaman came to Elisha and says, oh, go dip in the in the river seven times, in the Jordan seven times. And he got furious. And then his servants approached him and he said, look, Master, if he had asked you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? Why not just go dip yourself in the stinking river seven times? And uh, sure enough, he did it, and he got healed. But, uh, yeah, I think of that as parallel as far as the attitude. Why not do something that's easy to do? Why get defensive and prideful about how right we were about certain things? No, No doubt anybody from any Christian background has been right about certain things. But if there's something, there's a flaw in the foundational understanding of things, why not have the God-fearing humility to go back and say, you know what, I should do this just because I was wrong about so many things back when I thought of myself as dedicating my life to Christ. Why not do something that foundational just to, not because I'm afraid that God's going to, you know, send me to the lake of fire if I don't do it, but because it honors him. If Jesus said to do it, I honor him, I honor his lordship by obeying what the Lord said. If the Lord had said, well, this is good for some people, but it not, might not be for you, you know, there are other things about which that, that might be true. But the scriptures don't really, you know, present baptism as if it's just well, kind of an optional nice thing to do if you feel like it. It's it's really not presented that way. So that's what I think about that at this time, anyway. Oh, well, thank you so much for taking the time out to uh, talk with me today. And I think this is an important subject that 
I think a lot of us from our background coming out of the way international way back when do need to wrestle with uh, whichever side of it you fall on. And uh, a lot of other Christian groups, maybe maybe this isn't something of interest to them, but I, I think it is still an important issue nonetheless. So thanks for, for giving that explanation and for uh, sharing your own journey with us. Well, thank you, Sean. Thanks for uh, allowing me to share a little bit. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a blessing to, to be able to speak up about something. For those of us who are from our background, I'm I'm so thankful that that I learned, say, from from your dad and from so, other people, the necessity of ditching, you know, once saved, always saved thinking, probably 15, 16 years ago, and starting to think in terms of a repentant lifestyle. And I, I think this seeing the importance of baptism is a culmination for for me. Uh, really, you know, getting a sort of a last piece in place that had been missing from my previous understanding. So I'm hopeful that people will read the scriptures for themselves and think about the possibility that they've misunderstood something. And once again, Yahweh is so loving and understanding when we admit that, yeah, I misunderstood not only this, but a lot of things. Why not go ahead and take action that shows that I'm repentant of having based aspects of my life on previous misunderstandings. So that's, anyway, getting redundant now, but <laughs> thank you, Sean. Thanks, Thanks Ken, for, for sharing, sharing with me today. today. Oh, yeah. Well, I hope this interview got you thinking about the subject a little bit. And uh, if you'd like to put a comment online on this episode, you can do so at restitutio.org. That's restitution with no N, dot O-R-G. And click on podcast in the menu and then scroll down to the episode for interview 14 with Ken LaProd and put your comment there. Coming up for next week, we are going to relaunch our off-script roundtable discussions with Rose Ryder and Daniel Fitzsimmons, tackling a number of the common idols that we find in our time today and how we can spot these various counterfeit gods and root them out of our lives. So stay tuned for that next week. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.